Hey guys, it is good to see you guys. I know some of you thought I was on sabbatical, but I am not. I am back. Sorry. I know you came because you thought the guy with the tattoos was going to be preaching again today, but no such luck. You got to see uh, two first-time amazing history-making things in the last two weeks on Sunday mornings. Two weeks ago, you got to see Pastor Byron preach without a suit on. So that was the first time we've ever experienced that. I think after about 10 years in this church, we're starting to rub off. Um, no suit for Pastor Byron. And then Pastor Ricky, that's his first ever sermon that he preached uh, this past Sunday. And uh, it was pretty cool. And uh, I'm a little concerned about job security, but whatever. <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to work on my guitar playing and see if we can do some sort of swap, but now we got Steven, so what am I gonna do? I have no way to keep my job, so uh, pray for me as I'm gonna be out uh, putting out resumes. So um, anyway, I had a great trip. I'm glad to be back. It's good to be with all of you guys. Uh, if you're new around here, you may not realize we are doing this kind of weird study through the book of Acts where we're bouncing around the book of Acts and trying to learn some big lessons. It's a four-part um, series, really. The first uh, section, let's just recap since we've had a couple weeks off. First section was called Co-Mission, in which we talked about the fact that God has not just been on a mission, but he has called us to join him in that mission. And so the things that are uh, what God is about are the things that we are supposed to be about. And we talked about that at length for a few weeks, and then we moved on to the second series in this larger series called Body Life. And we looked at what does it look like in the book of Acts for the church to be the church, and then how do we uh, adopt those same principles into our life as a church and our life as believers? What does it mean for us to be a part of the body of Christ. And then we moved on and we looked at uh, the world-changing power displayed in the book of Acts. And we got to see beyond just the miraculous stories that you see on almost every page of the book of Acts, but even beyond the miracles to realize that the deeper work of God is the work that he's doing in the hearts and lives of people because he's changing the world. And so those are the uh, first three laps of our four lap series, and we're entering the fourth lap right now as we begin this new series called Therefore Go. And this final series brings us right back to the Great Commission where we sort of started off and those are gonna be kind of bookends for the series. Um, and we have seen it over and over and over uh, almost every week as we've been in the book of Acts, we have turned at some point to chapter one, verse eight. So I'm not even gonna make you turn there. I just want to remind you that in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus lays out the commission and basically says, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And he lays that out for us. We also looked at the end of the book of Luke and we were reminded that Luke wrote the book of Acts and he also also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and that the book of Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, he too lays out this picture of Jesus saying, listen, I'm not gonna be here much longer, I'm going to send my spirit, but here's what you need to know. It is going to be your responsibility as my followers to continue the mission that I have been on during my time 
on the earth. And then uh, perhaps the best known summary of all of what is called the Great Commission is the one that we find in Matthew chapter 28. So take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. So if you can just find the New Testament and find Matthew, go to the last book of, uh, the last chapter of Matthew, I should say. And we're just gonna look again, for many of us, very familiar passage. We've looked at it a couple of times already in this series on Acts. But let's look at it again, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28. Let me just read it to you. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I wanna stop there because that's the part of the Great Commission that we tend to skip through and just move on and go, now he's gonna get to the important part. Guys, the important part is this. All authority belongs to him. He has all authority. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator. And when you are the king and the Lord and the creator and God almighty, it means that you are sovereign. You are in charge. We serve you. You're not here to serve us. We're here to serve you, Lord, right? And so when he's about to tell us what he wants us to do, he begins by reminding us, listen, this is an order from your commanding officer, This is not something you could shrug your shoulders at and go, okay, maybe, maybe not, we'll see. Maybe that's for some people, but it's sort of not my thing. He goes, no, if you're gonna be my follower, I want you to understand, this is my heart. This is what I want you to be about. I have all the authority to tell you this. And then he goes on in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, everything in me wants to spend the next 30 minutes just diving into unpacking these verses for you, and we may have to do a whole series on this at another time, but without wading too deep into the weeds of the theology and the Greek language here, I wanna give us an understanding because most of us, when we read this, it says, go therefore and make disciples, and we think, aha, this is a command for us to go, but what if I don't feel like somebody who's called to go? What if I feel like God has given me a a mission field right where I am? I mean, does everybody have to go to some foreign land? Does everybody have to pack up and leave in order to be with God? Well, it says, therefore go, and he says, I have all authority to give you this command. So what does this mean? When you look at it in the Greek, it's it's quite a bit different. Uh, Okay, how far am I gonna go here? All right, let me just say this. Take a Greek class. You won't like it any more than I did. But here, here's, <laughs> here's the basic picture here. The, the focus of the verse is the word, is the phrase, make disciples. That's the verb. Everything else is what's called a participle in the Greek. Go, baptizing, and teaching. Those other verbs, are they don't act as verbs in the Greek language, they act as participles. They are supporters to the idea of, of make disciples, right? So what he's saying is, therefore, go make disciples. Now, let me say it, therefore, make disciples as you're going baptizing and teaching. 
That might be the better way for us to translate it into English. So when he tells us to do this, what he's saying is the focus of the Great Commission is the making of disciples. Now what is a disciple? A disciple is one who is becoming more and more like his master. That's a disciple. And so the, the, the mission, the responsibility, the torch that has been handed to the church is that of making disciples. And that happens as you're going, as you're baptizing, as you're teaching people to observe his command. Jesus came to earth to save the lost. Not just in one place at one time for one generation, but to save lost people in all places over all times in every generation. And so his, his strategy for this is absolutely genius. He says it's going to happen on a generation by generation basis. One of us is going to build into someone else who will build into someone else who will build into someone else. It's like the old shampoo commercial. You tell two friends and I'll tell two friends and pretty soon everybody knows. That's the idea, and it's a brilliant approach. So when we talk about this great commission that he's called us to join him in, that's what we're talking about. And if we're gonna take that seriously, we need to take some time to think about what it really means to join Jesus in this disciple-making movement that he came to begin. Okay, let me see if I can make this... uh, a little brighter for you. Um, when a woman finds out she's pregnant, especially for the first time, right? She takes a little test and then she freaks out and then she gets another test and takes it and pretty soon she goes to the doctor and the doctor confirms, yep, you're pregnant. She's pregnant for the first time. She's gonna buy a book. What book is she gonna buy, ladies? <laughs> exactly. Every first time mom buys what to expect when you're expecting, it's sort of the deal. I literally looked this up. It said, a perennial New York Times bestseller and one of USA Today's 25 most influential books of the past 25 years. It's read by more than 90% of pregnant women who read a pregnancy book. And there's over 14 and a half million copies of this book in print. So um, most of you ladies who have a child, and if you had that child in the last 30 years, you probably have a tattered copy of that book or you handed it down to some other lady at some point. Um, and, And the concept behind the book is this. You're like, what is he talking about pregnancy for? Follow me, I'm almost there. So here's here's the idea. Um, The book will tell you, look, uh, no two pregnancies are alike, but there are some things you can expect. So let's talk about what you can expect. I wish when I gave my life to Jesus in 1979 that someone had given me a book about what to expect when you're on mission with God. Oh wait, they did. (laughs) Now that I think of it, they did. It's called the Bible. We have this book that basically is like, listen, you're called to be on this mission. You are now going to change the whole direction of your life. You're going to walk with Jesus. Guys, I don't know if we say this enough. Jesus is not an addition to your life. Jesus is the center of your life. 
He's not, he's not just another spoke on the wheel of your life. He's the hub to which all of the other spokes are attached. So when you come to know Jesus and you decide you're gonna start walking with Jesus, it changes everything. And when it changes everything, that there's no two walks with God that are the same. Your experience with Jesus has not been exactly the same as my experience with Jesus and has not been exactly the same as someone else's experience with Jesus, but there are certain things you can expect. And so if we're gonna walk on this journey with him and we're gonna take this seriously and we're gonna be about what he's about, I thought it would be good for us to take at least a couple of weeks here and go, okay, what can we expect while we're on this mission with God. There are some things you can expect. So what can you learn from the book of Acts that will tell you what you can expect when you're living your life on mission for God? And today I'm just gonna give you two, and they're, neither one of them is any fun. But bear with me, because uh, we're gonna keep going, and uh, it gives you a reason to come back next week. So here's the first one. What to expect when you're on mission with God? Expect opposition. Boo. Expect opposition. That, let's just think for a second. Those of you who've been with us throughout this uh, series on Acts, let's just think for a second some of what we've already seen in Acts, right? So, you know, Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit splashes on the scene and everything cool is happening. And when the Spirit comes, right, what happens? The, uh, everything is thrown into confusion. Uh, there's a, a violent rushing wind sound. There's tongues of fire over people's heads. People are speaking languages they've never spoken before. It is cacophonous, it is wild, and everybody is freaking out. That's what happens, right? But now the Holy Spirit has come on the scene. He has shown up and filled them with power. And now in Acts chapter four, we have Peter and John going up to the temple to worship and they meet the lame beggar and they heal him in Jesus' name. He starts leaping and dancing and it causes a big scene. And what happens? The authorities show up and they arrest these guys. I mean, what a terrible thing to do to heal somebody who's been sick his whole life. You should definitely be arrested for that, right? So they get arrested. They get taken before a tribunal where they are threatened within an inch of their life and they are essentially given a cease and desist order. This is just the very beginning of their ministry in the post-Jesus on earth time and they're given a cease and desist order. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and the authorities say, cease and desist. And by the way, they say, you saw what we did to the Jesus guy, right? We're serious about this. Cease and desist. So what do they do? Well, they have a prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting, they ask God to make them more bold and more courageous so that they can do the very thing they have been commanded by those in power and authority not to do. Opposition. You turn to the, the page to chapter five um, and the authorities find out they're ignoring us. They're out there doing this stuff still. They're preaching in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They round up all of the apostles and put them in jail. 
They're like, okay, if you want to kill the snake, cut off its head. We did that to Jesus, but now there seems to be this sort of 12-headed monster rising up. Let's get all of those apostles. We will put them in jail. Once they're in jail, they can't do anything, and we will cut this movement off. So they go to jail. And an angel shows up and opens the doors and lets them out and says to them, go into the public square and keep preaching. So they do. And guess what happens? They get arrested again. I mean, these are law-abiding guys. Worst thing they ever did before was like cut off another boat on the fishing lake. And now they're in big trouble because they're followers of Jesus. And they're getting arrested. And so they've been arrested again. And this time, they go before a larger trial and they are threatened that they will be put to death if they keep doing this. And just for good measure, they are whipped and beaten before they're released. Take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter five. We'll just kind of skim through some of this real quick. And in Acts chapter five, listen to what happens to them. At the very end of the chapter, Acts chapter five, beginning in verse 40, this guy Gamaliel, who is a a very respected Pharisee, stands up and he says, hey, look, let's don't kill these guys because uh, who knows, maybe it is from God. And so here's what they do. In verse 40, it says, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, which is the same thing they did to Jesus before they crucified him and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. And I love this. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, like that's not a very subtle place to do this, right? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Opposition. Chapter seven, infamously, Stephen is stoned to death outside the city gate for his faith in Jesus. And in Acts chapter eight, turn turn to Acts chapter eight, the beginning of Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight, verse one, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So Saul becomes a serious problem for this young church. He becomes sort of the focal point of the opposition. He is leading the movement against the church. And he has the authority and the power to drag them off and put them into jail and even put them to death if they will not cease and desist from doing the things that Jesus has called them to do. So Saul becomes a serious problem for the church. What do you do when there's someone that powerful, that passionate, that committed, and he's against you? Oh, you know what? God has ways. Saul's on his way to Damascus, riding his high horse. God knocks him off. The voice of Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Strikes him blind. And then he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, dummy. That's in the 
Greek, you have to read it. <laughs> and and, and he's, he has a guy lead him by the hand and go off to this place where he has to wait, right? And so he's struck blind, and then God speaks to this Christ follower named Ananias and says, okay, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go to this guy, Saul, and I want you to pray with him. And he goes, oh, oh, oh wait a minute, Lord. I know about that guy, Saul. He kills us. He goes, don't worry. Listen to what it says. Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine. Now there was a, uh, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has, done, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And here's the verse I want you to see, verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, if everyone, when they felt called into ministry, their calling was, you're going to suffer immensely, I think we'd have a whole lot less people talking about their call to ministry. Saul's call to ministry was, I have a plan for you, I'm going to use you in, pro in profound ways, and as I do, you're going to suffer immensely in the process. This is not a punishment. This is not God's way of saying, I'm gonna teach you a lesson. This is simply God's way of saying, when you devote your life to being on the mission that I'm on, there's a cost. That's why Jesus told the parable about the building of the tower and how you have to count the cost before you build the tower. It's why Jesus said so many times, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. It's why Jesus said things like, if you don't love me, so much that your love for your family feels like hatred in comparison, then you're not worthy of me. It's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything because I know you love your stuff more than you love me. It's why Jesus said to the man who wanted to bury his father, let the, bed, the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Guys, we don't talk about this very much. This is not popular at the harvest crusade. But you want to get a crowd to come down onto the field? You're probably not going to talk about all the suffering and all of the cost, but it's part of the gospel story. By the way, that wasn't a knock on the harvest crusade, which is awesome. I, I'm just saying, in evangelism, we just conveniently leave this part out, but Jesus never did. And somehow those who followed him were much more committed than the average person who says they follow him today. It's interesting, right? So as you keep reading the book of Acts, you see that wherever the gospel goes, there's always opposition. Friends, God has a very real and very powerful enemy by the name of Satan. He, he's called the prince of the power of the air. He, he's given a tremendous authority on the earth 
for a time. And he is working overtime to try to stop what God is trying to do. Now, he's, he has no hope. He's a defeated foe, amen? amen? He's a defeated foe. He has no hope. He's already defeated, but you know what? He's still squirming and twitching on the ground and he has not stopped the fight. And you could talk about how greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It's absolutely true. Guys, the power of Satan is nothing compared to the power of God. But let me just tell you something. Satan's stronger than you. He's more deceptive than you could ever imagine. He's more powerful than you really realize. And there is a battle going on. And he's committed to trying to stop the Great Commission. And although his fate is already sealed, he hasn't stopped the fight. That's why we pray without ceasing. That's why we put on the whole armor of God. That's why we never try to do any of this on our own strength. Because, you know, um, you may be weaker than Satan, but God is stronger. So as you are with God and allowing God to work through you, amazing things can happen. But man, remember, remember the guy in the book of Acts? I should have taken us to this passage, but we don't have time. Remember the guy in the book of Acts who he, um, he says, uh, I, I want the powers of the apostles. And so he goes and tries to cast these demons out. Of the, and the, the demon says to him, he goes, in the name of Jesus and Paul come out. And the demon says to him, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? and then beats him up. The opposition is real. So, so this mission that we're called to, it's not fun to hear, but it's not for the faint of heart. And I'll just be completely honest, I think some of the stumblings in my own life over the years have been because I have taken too lightly the fact that there is a powerful being who is opposed to everything that I stand for now as a follower of Christ. We need to realize there is not maybe going to be opposition. There will be opposition. If you walk with Jesus, there will be opposition. So buckle up, Chachi. It's gonna be a bumpy road. If you never experience opposition as you try to walk with God, then you should probably ask yourself if you're really walking with God. Now, lest we misunderstand what I'm saying, I wanna give you a word of warning here because I think some of us as Christians need to hear this. I'm not saying you should go looking for a fight. I'm not saying that God is calling us to seek out people and attack them, those who believe differently than us, so that we're here to, um, to fight with everybody who disagrees with us. Don't go looking for a fight. Opposition is just part of the deal. It's like swimming upstream. It's hard. And, and that's why Paul is, uh, that's why Paul's calling included this warning about the opposition that was going to come, the suffering that was going to come. Listen, too many of us, uh, when I say us, I mean those who name the name of Jesus and, and put fish on the backs of our cars. Too many of us are seen by those who don't know the Lord as opposed to them because we're looking for a fight. And, and as our society um, becomes more and more divided. And as everyone gets a voice on social media, some people who 
don't deserve a voice, have a very loud voice on social media. And as those voices are loud, there is a tendency for us to step up and say, I can outscream you. Guys, nobody ever came to know Jesus because someone outscreamed them. So let me give you that word of warning. We don't need to go looking for a fight. The opposition is coming. It's already there. We saw this last week. Pastor Ricky talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They were delivered from the fire, amen? Amen. After they were thrown into the fire. (laughs) You know, in that same book, Daniel is delivered from the lions after he's thrown into the lion's den. It's real. So if you never face any opposition, maybe you should ask yourself why. But just remember, the gospel is already offensive. We don't need to be. I'm just gonna say that again. Some of you, wake up the person next to you, okay? The gospel in and of itself is offensive. You don't need to be offensive. So, so let's, let's remove stumbling blocks that are getting in the way of us loving people who don't know the Lord. Let's remove stumbling blocks that are getting in the way of people listening to the gospel because they're so offended by the offensive way. You know, if you're shouting with a bullhorn on a street corner, you're offensive. If, if you're shouting with a bullhorn on Instagram and, and uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and all the other places, you are offensive. Let's, so let's just do this. Raise your hand if you came to know Jesus because you saw somebody's angry post on Facebook. <laughs> right? We don't need to go looking for a fight. We need to recognize that the opposition is there and it's looking for us. But we are not looking for a fight. We don't need to be offensive. Some Christians wear the hatred of others like a crown and a medal. I'm so righteous that I can't stand those who are not righteous. Jesus said that if people hated him, they would hate us too. And lots of people hate me, so I must be doing something right. Maybe they hate you because you're a jerk. Just saying. (laughs) Ask your spouse, maybe they'll explain. So many people I know are turned off to Christianity because they reject, uh, not because they reject Jesus, but because they reject us. So let's be careful. What did Jesus call us to do? Love people. And most people know Christians for what we're against. But Jesus said they would know us because of our love. You don't make disciples by beating them into submission. You make disciples by loving them just as Christ loves you. And that leads us to our second thing that you should expect. You should expect misunderstanding. If you're gonna walk with Jesus, you're gonna be on this mission, you're gonna be serious about following Jesus, expect misunderstanding. Let's go back to Acts chapter two. Get an idea of how this works, right? In Acts chapter two, 
As we said, there's a sound of a violent rushing wind. There's something like tongues of fire above the heads of the apostles and the disciples. There's uh, people speaking in dozens of different languages all out loud at the very same time and everybody hearing it in their own language. It is wild. It is crazy. Let's be honest. It is freaky. When the Holy Spirit gets his way and gets to run your life, he's going to do some freaky stuff. And as people are arriving on the scene and they're hearing what's going on and they're seeing all the craziness around this in Acts chapter 2, they are understandably confused. Some people are amazed and they're drawn to God. 3,000 souls added that day. And others are tremendously skeptical. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Listen, this, this, this isn't real. There's something, there's something weird going on here. Now, that, what a strange, they're full of sweet wine. Therefore, they speak in other languages. I, like, what a strange conclusion to draw. But their point is, I don't get what's going on. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. Even the people who were impressed were still confused. Verse 12, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying, what does this mean? And everybody else was simply skeptical. They didn't understand. They didn't understand what they were seeing. They didn't understand what they were hearing. They didn't understand what they were witnessing. You know, um, it's the weirdest thing. My brother, I just went on this road trip with my brother. It was this amazing thing. Uh, you know, we, we were raised together. We're two years apart. We have not spent this much time together since we were children. 12 days on the road together. Couldn't get rid of him. It was, it was glorious. It was great. We had this amazing time, right? But what you may have not heard in my story is that I came to know Jesus in October of 1979. On the same day that I came to know Jesus, completely separate from me, my brother came to know Jesus the same day. And by the way, just to make it more interesting, we had a best friend. We were kind of the fearsome threesome. Separate from us, he came to know Jesus on the same day. We were a born-again small group. It was amazing what God did. So, so, and my brother and me, our lives changed like a lot really fast. All of our priorities changed. All of our activities changed. We stopped doing things we were doing, started doing things we'd never been doing before. We were at church like every day of the week trying to get as much of this Jesus stuff as we could possibly get. And my dad is watching this not knowing the Lord at that time, and yea, verily, verily, he doth freaketh out. <laughs> he thought we were in a cult. He's like, you know, a little bit of religion, he sat us down. You know, guys, you know, a little bit of religion can be a good thing. I'm all for Jesus and stuff, but I don't know about this. He was really skeptical. We used to come home from Bible study all excited because we learned something new about the Word of God, and we'd tell my dad, hey, Dad, and he would be like, oh, yeah, well, what, how, where did the dinosaurs go? And I'm like, oh, I 
don't know. I just learned John 3.16. Leave me alone, you know? He just wanted to battle. He wanted to battle. He wanted to battle. Guys, for, for people who don't understand, by the way, I had the privilege of leading my dad to Christ some 15 years later, and he's with the Lord in heaven today because of that. But, but for people who don't know, it's confusing. You have to admit, if you don't know Jesus, the gospel seems pretty weird. I'm like way out of time. But Ricky went over last week, and so I'm like, hey, I can... I feel like I have permission. So we're not gonna look this up because I'm going too long here, but, but write it in your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's a well-known passage. Basically, let me summarize it for you. In it, um, Paul writes, the gospel is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. It's foolishness. And he talks about how God takes the wisdom of man and makes it foolishness and that the so-called foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest man. Guys, listen, if you know Jesus, I just, I just wanna tell you this. If you have the privilege of being a child of God, it is because of the unbelievable grace of God that was poured out upon you. You did not figure it out. You did not earn it. You did not deserve it. It's the grace of God. And so if by grace you have been saved, why are you so ticked off at people who don't understand? We have to realize that if you don't understand the gospel, it's because the Lord has not yet taken the scales off your eyes as he did for Paul. People are gonna misunderstand. That's why we need to build relationships, not arguments. It's really good to know apologetics. It's really good to be in a position where you can answer honest questions from people. But I've, I find that there are very few honest questions. What there are is provocative arguments. And um, I think maybe if we started building relationships and spent less time building arguments, we'd see the kingdom being built. Don't just seek to be understood, seek to understand. Actually love people. The old saying stands true, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Ephesians 4.15 tells us, speak the truth in love. What does that mean? It means in the context of a love relationship, speak the truth because people are willing to hear the truth from someone who loves them. But if you're their opponent, if you're their debating foe, their, their minds are closed to the truth. When you're walking as a disciple of Jesus, and he's really changing your life, there's gonna be a lot of people who do not understand. Expect misunderstanding. It's a great commission. And you and I are miraculously invited to be a part of it. What a privilege. What a privilege. Will we face opposition? Yeah. Is there gonna be misunderstanding? Of course. But what a privilege. Next week, we're gonna talk about more of what to expect, and it's not all negative. So come back next week. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your grace and your kindness and your faithfulness, your gentleness with us, for your patience and your understanding. Thank you, God, that you don't send us off to face opposition alone, but you call us to join you and you take care of the opposition. Thank you, God, that you don't require us to become offensive just to present a gospel that to many are offensive.
Thank you, God, that you have somehow, for so many of us, opened our hearts and given us understanding of supernatural truths that we wouldn't understand without your grace. Oh, God, won't you do that for more? Won't you do that through us? Won't you open our hearts and minds and through us touch the lives of others? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.